good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning. If you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to the book of Exodus. We're going to finish Exodus chapter 2 this morning. I'm excited to share with you from God's Word. Exodus chapter 2, we're we're going to focus our time on verses 23 through 25. Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. And when you find that, I invite you to stand in honor of God's word. Exodus chapter two, verses 23 through 25. As a reminder, we believe that these words were given by inspiration of God and are the only sufficient, certain, and authoritative rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Exodus chapter two, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Let's pray together. Lord, whom have we in heaven but you? To whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Therefore, we now come to your word, seeking these words of eternal life. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us a mind to understand. Give us a heart to believe. Give us a spirit to obey. Guide us with your counsel, O Lord. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. The title of my sermon this morning is The God Who Saves. And I've chosen this title because in a chapter, and really in two chapters in Exodus, where it seems as if God might be absent, unless you have read the rest of the book, we find here in the last three verses this beautiful reminder of who God is, of what he does. We're reminded at the end of of Exodus chapter 2 that our God has not been caught asleep. He's not on vacation. He's not far away, but rather he has been working in the background by acts of his divine providence the entire time. It reminds me of Psalm 121 in which the psalmist says, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Before we look at what Moses records for us in Exodus chapter two, verses 23 through 25, I do want to remind us about the state of affairs in this story in Exodus so far. The book of Exodus begins here with the word and to signify that this is merely a continuation of what God began in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis ends with some 70 people entering Egypt for rescue from a famine. And the book of Exodus opens up with an understanding that these people have turned into a multitude. It says that they had multiplied and increased greatly in Egypt, so much so that the Pharaoh in power in Egypt is afraid. He's afraid that the sons of Israel might overpower them, and so he enslaves them. But in their oppression, they multiply more and more. And again, in fear and in hatred, Pharaoh decrees first privately and then publicly that all the Hebrew boys being born in that time and that place are would to be murdered. Yet by the grace of God and the faith of his parents, Moses is born. He's hidden. He's ultimately put into a a basket and floated down the Nile River to the daughter of the Pharaoh. And by the kindness of God, He is nursed and raised by his own birth mother for a time and then raised in Pharaoh's palace. As we looked last week, we, we realized that at 40 years old, Moses looks out on the people of Israel, his people, and he sees their groaning. He longs to help them and he takes matters into his own hands. 
He murders an Egyptian who was beating one of his Hebrew brothers. He flees then because the Pharaoh wanted his life. And so he flees Pharaoh into the land of Midian where he saves the daughters of rule and he, he marries one of them and has a son. And we've studied this book for two chapters now. And after all of that, we hear first in verse 23, the first time an action of God is deliberately, explicitly recorded. And in fact, we hear four distinct actions. And the word for God here, Elohim, is is mentioned four times in these three verses alone, emphasizing that something, if we could pretend for a moment that we hadn't read the rest of Exodus before, that something big, something important is about to happen. And it's not something that the Israelites could manufacture on their own. It's not something that the Israelites could create by their own power, but rather he says, it seems to, to be, in Moses' words, that something bigger is going to happen than what they could create. That God has mentioned here four times in three verses, and he's given four distinct actions that he does. Matthew Henry writes about this moment, quote, the frequent repetition of the name of God here intimates that now we are to expect something great. Opus Deo Dignum, a work worthy of God. His eyes which run to and fro through the earth are now fixed upon Israel to show himself strong, to show himself a God in their behalf. And this morning, I want to take those four action verbs and then I also want to take uh, a fifth action that I, I believe is implicit in verse 23 and explore the five actions that I believe in these three verses God takes. And so I think there are four that are very explicit that we see that, that God hears, that God remembers, that God sees, and that God, know, God knows. But in verse 23, I think implicitly, Moses is telling us that God acts. And so we'll, we'll look at that first. Let's look first at verse 23. To know that the God who saves is first the God who acts. Look at verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. What I want to point out here is that our God acts in seeming silence. I said that this point is implicit in what Moses writes about the king of Egypt in verse 23. Because when we look at verse 23, it says, during those many days. Stephen, in his sermon in Acts chapter 7, tells us that it was actually 40 years. And so I want you to imagine here, I want you to think about the the place that they're at. It's been 40 years since Moses saw the affliction of his people. 40 years since Moses tried to save them from their burdens. 40 years since Moses fled from Egypt to the, for the fear of Pharaoh, and yet God has not gone on some 40-year-long vacation. What has he been doing? He's been acting on behalf of his people. He's been preparing them for salvation that he'd bring through Moses. He's been preparing Egypt for the destruction it would experience at his hands. His voice is seemingly absent. His face is seemingly hidden, but his hand is active, and it has not once made a wrong move. In his silence, he is acting. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. We see here in his works of providence that he is working on behalf of his people. Why does it matter? Why does it matter that the king of Egypt died? Well, because if you look back up at chapter two, verse 15, you'll see that this is the king, this is the Pharaoh who sought to kill Moses and he died, making it the right time for Moses to return to Egypt. God would say as much to Moses in Exodus 4, 19, when he says, and the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. Note the wisdom of God here. As he's preparing Moses in the wilderness of Midian, he's preparing Egypt through the death of the Pharaoh. It reminds me so beautifully of what Paul writes about the world at the time that Christ came. He says in Galatians 4, and God sent Christ when the fullness of time had come, or in our vernacular, at the right time. That God in his wisdom, in his providence, everything is falling into place. And our God is the God who acts. 
And I think we might see this most clearly in the reality that during those many days, the king of Egypt died. There's an implicit juxtaposition here between the king of Egypt and Elohim, the king of kings, the king overall. In the Egyptian religion, the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, was considered an intermediary between the people of Egypt and the Egyptian gods. He was seen as one who was installed by the gods, one who was given power to rule by the gods. And though he was acknowledged to be human, he was worshipped as one who sat on a holy throne. And yet this one who sat on a quote-unquote holy throne, the one who was an intermediary between the gods of Egypt and the people of Egypt, died and he was replaced. In fact, we've seen in the book of Exodus, two pharaohs die and be replaced. But church, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. He cannot be replaced. I'm reminded of Isaiah's vision in in Isaiah six, where it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I'm reminded of the words of Job, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Our God, the God who acts as unlike any other supposed God or any other supposed king, he's the eternal God, the all-wise God, the all-wise one, the omnipotent one, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. There is none like him. And if there is none like him, then what a hope is ours. Because our Savior did not succumb to natural causes like some Pharaoh. He tells us in John 10 that he laid down his life that he might take it up again. And not only that, our Savior was not one who died and was replaced, but rather his death accomplished a salvation plan before the foundation of the world. What does Peter say in Acts 2? He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I want you to see here in verse 23 in the, in the implicit nature of what Moses is saying, God was working salvation. Hear me, this is important. God was working the salvation of his people before the people cried for help. This, this, is, this is wildly important because God does not change. God was working the salvation for his people before the people cried for help. I want you to notice God in his providence is is working these things for the good of his people. Listen, before they cry for help, all of these things are happening before we ever hear the first Israelite cry. He did not give in those 40 years just some, some time to wait. He was faithful. He was working. He is not passive. He's not powerless. He is not far off. He was working the salvation of his people before the people cried. God had planned in his infinite wisdom to rescue them from slavery. In fact, he promised it all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. And before we ever knew just as a, a while, by way of application, before we ever knew of the suffering that we're experiencing right now, he planned it for our good and for his glory. May we be a people who trust the providence of God to provide all that we need because the reality is in Christ, he acts on behalf of his people. He works salvation for us before we ever cry out to him. I think I would be irresponsible to point out in this first three verses how much Moses is trying to prove to us that God is the primary actor in the salvation of his people. God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. These three verses are filled with action verbs that shout at us that it is indeed God not only in this moment, but for all moments that came before and all moments that come after. It's not that the cries of the people were loud enough or that the groanings of their hearts were deep enough, but rather that the mercy of God was strong enough to rescue them from their slavery for the sake of his own glory and name. 
He's been working this salvation for them ever since he promised it and before. And he does not change. In the new covenant, God is the primary actor in your salvation. The Baptist Catechism refers to this as God's good pleasure. It reminds us, quote, God having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer in his good pleasure. What is what we read for our call to worship this morning? Tell us, it tells us that he foreknew that he predestined, that he called, that he justified, that he glorified. That in the words of Jonathan Edwards, you contributed nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. He has done it all. What a glorious gospel that we believe. God was working the salvation for his people before the cries of his people, and he was working your salvation before you knew his name. He was working your salvation when you were a God-hater. It was not that our cries for rescue were loud enough or that our groanings were deep enough, but rather that the mercy of God was strong enough to rescue us from our slavery to sin. He planned it. He executed it from beginning to end. And we stand here as glad recipients. He is the God who acts. But not only is he the God who acts, Verse 23 and verse 24 would tell us, second, that he is the God who hears. He's the God who hears. If you look at the end of verse 23, it says, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. Ironically, last night as I was working on this very point, Asher began to cry from his crib, which in the moment is, you know, you're writing and you're like, you feel like you're in a groove, you know what you're, you're trying to write, and then you hear a cry. But as I was sitting there rocking him back to sleep, I was reminded of the comfort it is for our children to know that we are the ones who hear their cries. It's not as if our homes are like big amusement parks where there's just a bunch of people who might hear a cry who have no who have no relationship or love for the the person who's crying. But rather in in our homes and in our families, our children hear cry, our children cry and they know that the ones who hear their cries love them. What a comfort it is to know this simple truth that the God who is the God over all, the God who loves us is the one who hears our cries. It reminds me of that great showdown in 1 Kings 18 when Elijah is standing in battle with the 450 prophets of Baal for the hearts of the people. And this is what the text says about these prophets of Baal. It says in verse 26, and they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, oh Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. But after one prayer from Elijah, the fire of the Lord came down and consumed not merely the offering, but the stone that it was on and the water around it. We have a God who hears. What a comfort it is to know that when we cry out to our God, he hears. Psalm 135 says, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. 
The God that Moses is writing about is not a God who cannot hear. He's not a God with ears that cannot hear. He is the God who indeed hears. He is the God who hears and and thus acts. We can't move on so quickly that we neglect to marvel at the fact that he hears. Because the reality is there are billions of people who woke up this morning and worshiped a God who cannot hear what they have to say. Worshiped a God who has no ability to act on their behalf. But our God hears. And what does it say that he hears? In verse 23, it says that their, their cry for rescue from slavery, more, more literally their cry because of their bondage or their slavery came up to God. That the cries because of their bondage came up to God. It's as if they rose to the top. That it's, it's not that God is like us and can be distracted and cannot hear what he's supposed to hear. He hears all things and he hears. He's not a man who can, who can miss important details. He heard their cries in the midst of all the noise of all of the earth. And so often in our lives, we have cried out to God. We've prayed every day. We've poured out our hearts. And it seems that God has remained silent. Church, be reminded that he hears Many of you are praying for any number of things, for unbelieving children, for wayward brothers and sisters, for healing from diseases. Many of those prayers are accompanied with tears, much like these these prayers are accompanied here in Exodus chapter two. He hears your cries. But notice that he doesn't merely hear the cries, he hears the groans Verse 24, and God heard their groaning. This word could be translated as sighs. If you live in close proximity with people, you know that you understand their sighs based off of how they sound, whether it's an elated sigh or a frustrated sigh. Our God hears the groans of the people He hears their groaning. Not merely the loud cries that were cried out, he hears even their sighs. The pain that cannot be communicated with words, he hears. This gets at what we call God's omniscience, that he knows all things, that he hears all things, that he sees all things, that there's nothing outside of his earshot, that there's nothing that he misses. He hears their groans. And in the New Testament, you know what's amazing about this? Paul reminds us that in our groaning, which the Septuagint here in Exodus chapter two, it's the same word used in Romans chapter eight, that we are groaning inwardly as we await eagerly for adoptions as son, the redemption of our bodies, as we are the people of God waiting for the consummation of all things. It says that the spirit himself, the spirit of God intercedes for us with what? With groanings too deep for words. That in the new covenant by the blood of Jesus, not only does the omniscient God hear our groanings, but his spirit actually groans for us. He hears their groanings and he hears ours. And in Christ, we know this to be true, that he heard our first cry for rescue from slavery to sin. He heard your first cry cry. One of my favorite examples of this is in the book of Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10, there's a a man, he's blind. His name is Bartimaeus. And this is what it says in Mark chapter 10, verse 46 through 52. It says, and they came to Jericho. And as he, that's Jesus, was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. 
Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. In the midst of all of this chaos, in the midst of this loud group of people who's walking on the road, Bartimaeus hears that Jesus is there and he cries out. He says, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus hears him. And whether your cry was, son of David, have mercy on me, or God, be merciful to me, a sinner, or I believe, help my unbelief, or merely save me, he hears and he saves. Because the reality is, it's not about the quality of the cries. It's not about how beautiful or, or right the cries are, but when we cry out for salvation, he is faithful to save because he hears and he acts. He is faithful to save. And we see him hear the groaning of the Israelites for a, a human slavery in Egypt, but oh, how much greater has he heard our cries for, for rescue from our slavery to sin. That when we cried out for him to save us, he saved us by his grace. That there is none who has called out to him in, in humble submission and asked for his grace and salvation that he has turned away. He's the God who hears. But Moses continues, and he says, not only is he the God who hears, in verse 24, he tells us, number three, that he is the God who remembers. He's the God who remembers. And God heard their groaning, verse 24, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And can we just pause for a moment? Because I, I really want us to see how, how this language is purposeful. If you were grading this as an essay for conciseness, you might say, you don't have to say, and God blank every time. You could just make it a list. But here we're reminded over and over and over again that this is God who hears, that this is God who remembers, that this is God who sees, that this is God who knows. And he says, he is the God who remembers. He heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And you might be sitting here today and, and be wondering what the text means in verse 24. If God is omniscient, if he knows all things, then how can he forget something? Well, this verse doesn't mean that he forgot anything. When he, says it, when he says that he remembered his covenant, it's not as though God had, had, after the deaths of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, forgotten that he had made a promise to them. It's not as though as they left and came to Egypt that he had forgotten about the promises he made because they're in a new place. It's not as though it slipped his mind but rather, when, when the Bible says that God remembers something, it means that he's about to take action on their behalf. When the Bible says that God remembers, it means that he's about to do something for them. Kevin DeYoung says this rather beautifully. He says, quote, God's remembering always involves moving toward the object of his memory. For God to remember is to act. To forget is to refuse to respond. And this is by no means the point of this text today, but think of the beauty of this, that when God remembers his covenant, what, is he, what does the Bible say that he forgets? He forgets our sins. He's faithful to his promise to remember his covenant. I want you to notice how the scripture uses this language. language. In the Noahic covenant, in Genesis chapter nine, this is what it says. God says, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on earth. He says, me remembering this covenant with you, Noah, is that I will not flood the earth again, that I will act on your behalf. Lot is ultimately saved from Sodom and Gomorrah because of God's covenant with Abraham. In Genesis 19, 29, it says, so it was, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. 
Rachel's womb is ultimately opened in Genesis chapter 30 because it says, then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. In Exodus 32, when Moses is pleading with God on behalf of the people of Israel after they had worshiped the golden calf, Moses pleads to God in this way, quote, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to you your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. What then does it mean in verse 24 when it says, and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? First, if you look back at Genesis 15, in the midst of the covenant that God makes with Abraham, largely a covenant as a reminder that God essentially makes with, him, with himself, swearing by himself that he will do this, these things. This is what he says. He says in Genesis 15, 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God is about to come through on this section of the covenant. He's about to act on their behalf. He's about to bring judgment on the Egyptians. He's about to usher them out of their slavery, not only ushering them out of their slavery, but ushering them out of their slavery with great possessions. He remembers this covenant, meaning he is going to act on it. He's prepared to act on behalf of it. And God reiterates this covenant to Isaac in Genesis chapter 24. And in Genesis 46, God speaks directly to Jacob. And this is what he says. It says in Genesis chapter 46, verse one, so Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Look back at what he promised. He says, and I will go... I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again. Well, at first it seems like it could just be God promising that when he dies, he, he won't be left in Egypt, but that his, they'll bring his bones to the land that is his by promise of God. On a much larger scale, God is reiterating the promise here that he's going to go with him to Egypt and he says, I'm going to bring you out again. Notice, I am the one who will bring you out again. God promises here in his remembering. He is, he, is, he is saying, I am going to do what I have promised to you that I will do. When he remembers the promise of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he says, I am going to act on your behalf. And in Christ, he has saved us. He has saved us in remembering the new covenant that saves us to the uttermost. What does Paul say in Galatians chapter three? This language here of, of remembering the covenant, we're, we're wrapped up in this in the new covenant in Christ. What does it say in Galatians chapter three? Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and your offspring who is Christ. And then he goes on to say in Galatians chapter three, verses 26 through 29, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offsprings, offspring heirs according to promise. Listen to this. Through faith in Christ, we are heirs of the promise of God. We're blessed. We're kept in God's covenant because he remembered his covenant. Through faith in Christ, we are welcomed in as fellow heirs. We are Abraham's offspring, not because of our ethnic heritage, but because of the faith that God has birthed in us. And God is faithful to remember his promises. And what has he promised you? As a recipient of the new covenant, this is what he's promised you. He's promised you that you are not saved by 
the blood of goats and bulls, but rather you are called to receive the promised eternal inheritance, Hebrews 9. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, our salvation is as sure as his word and our salvation is an eternal inheritance. And the remembering of God, the acting on our behalf is that he would save us that he would call us to a holy calling, 2 Timothy 1 would say, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. If you are found in Christ this morning, he has promised you an internal inheritance. When he looks at you, he remembers the covenant that he made with himself in eternity past to pluck you out of your depravity, to draw you to himself, to justify you, to sanctify you, to usher you into an eternal inheritance that Peter tells us is, quote, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Church, all the promises of God find their yes in him, and we can trust in his promise that in him we have an eternal inheritance. That in the new covenant, we're not going back to some some land that we're not merely looking for, for some sign, but rather in the new covenant, he has promised us an eternal, inher- eternal inheritance that is not a place, it is himself. And notice, this is how we ought to pray. How often can we merely just pray asking God to come through on his promises that he's already promised? How often can we pray to remind ourselves of the promises that he's given us by merely just praying them back to him? How often ought we to pray that he would bring his work of salvation to completion? That he would conform us to the image of Christ? That he would free us from the bondage of sin? That he would would usher us into life eternal? That he would make good on his promise of resurrection? We're reminded that our salvation is in him and it's based in his promise and in his covenant keeping. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And yet not only is he the God who remembers, number four, he's the God who sees. There's a comfort in who sees their affliction. Look at verse 25. And God saw the people of Israel. When you have a problem of any kind, you want that problem to be in front of the face of someone who can solve it. When you have a money problem, you want to be in front of a banker. When you have a physical problem, you want to be in front of a doctor. When you have a car problem, you want to be in front of a mechanic. The people of of Israel had an agonizing problem. Their agonizing problem was their slavery to Egypt. And the one who could rescue them is the one who the scripture says saw them. And I want you to notice the juxtaposition here because it is powerful. The same Hebrew word here in verse 25 for saw, God saw the people, is the word that is used in verse 11. If you, you might have to turn the page back to chapter two, verse 11. It says, and one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and saw their burdens. It's the same word. There's a contrast here. Moses saw the burdens and God Almighty saw the burdens. Moses, in in chapter two, verse 11, had a really puny earthly plan to fix this slavery. And surprise, it didn't work. But God sees. The God who saves has all things at his disposal. And we finish the chapter not by hearing that Moses saw We finish the chapter by hearing that it's God, the God who saves, who saw. In Exodus chapter four, verse 31, this is what's recorded for us. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. There's a comfort in who sees their affliction. It's not merely Moses because their, their salvation from slavery is not something that could be provided by a mere man. It was something that needed to be provided by God himself. 
And there is comfort in the same way, brothers and sisters, in who sees our affliction. He is not slow to look our way. And when he looks our way, it's not as some powerless helper, but as the omnipotent one. It reminds me of the the verse from A Mighty Fortress is Our God, where Martin Luther writes, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Don't ask, just ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he, the Lord of hosts, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. There's comfort in who sees our affliction but most importantly, there is, there is incomparable comfort in the fact that Christ saw us in our affliction with compassion. He saw us in our bondage to sin and had compassion on us. I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, where it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Praise God that he does not, he does not exhibit empty compassion, but God in Christ sees us in our bondage to sin and he comes and he tabernacles among us and he saves us by his grace. He sees with compassion. He does not turn a blind eye, but he sees us. Which leads us finally to, I think, the most fascinating verse, first fascinating word in this entire section at the end of verse 25. And finally, number five, he, the God who saves, is the God who knows. It almost, if, if this was not the scripture and this was some other book, we would wonder if the writer got caught up or got confused or, or got stopped or distracted by something. Let's read the whole text again. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue for, from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. This is such a strange sentence and it almost seems to end abruptly. But we know that there are no accidents with God. This verse in, in many ways acts as a, a bookend from chapter one, verse one. If you wanna take this whole section together, Moses is shouting at us. You see all that's happening to the people of Israel and Egypt. You see their slavery. You see the murdering of their firstborn. You see all of these Things, you hear their cries, you see their agony and groaning. And what is the most definitive answer to all of that? What is the most definitive answer to all of that pain and all of that sorrow and all of that slavery? What is the answer to that slavery, to that pain, to, to all of the suffering that's going on in these first two chapters? And he says, and God knows. That's the answer that God knew. This word is pregnant with hope. There is so much hope in the reality that God knew because if he knows, there is hope. What does he know? Well, I think we would be right to first say that he knows their sufferings. In many ways, we, we would argue that he is more aware of their sufferings than they are. How could he not be the God who knows the number of hairs that are on your head? He's, he's keenly aware of their suffering. He's not unaware. He's not far away. It's not as if he's up in the clouds, far away from their pain and has no idea the pain that they're experiencing. He knows intimately their sufferings. But not only does he know their sufferings, he knows their salvation, he knows that he is the one who has sworn that he will provide it and that now is the time. He knows what it takes. He knows who he will use in Moses. He knows that, that he will display his power over Pharaoh and that ultimately Pharaoh will be defeated. He knows. He's not someone who is, who is going into this reacting to what's happening to him. He knows. He knew. But this word New in the Old Testament isn't merely a, a, a word of mental assent. It's not merely, I know you, or I know things about you, or I have knowledge of various things. To know in the Old Testament is to love. Exodus chapter 33, verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. 
And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Amos 3, 2, you only have I known of all the families of the, of the earth. This word connotes intimacy, the intimacy and love for the one known. It's not merely that he knows them or that he knows facts about them, but he knows them intimately and he loves them. He knows the suffering that they're feeling. He knows their salvation. A.W. Pink writes, when that term is used in connection with God, it often signifies to regard with favor, denoting not mere cognition, but an affection for the object in view. This word is so full of meaning. Not only did he know their suffering, not only did he know their salvation, not only did he know every intricate detail about them, he heard every cry, he heard every groan, he knew the pain that they were experiencing because he knows all things. But not only did he know He is the perfect person, the perfect one to know. Because listen, in the new covenant, he knows our sufferings by experience. Hear me, I don't want you to to miss this. You think of all the things that he knows. He knows how many times they had been whipped. He knows the weight of what they had borne to to build the bricks that they were supposed to borne. He knows how many muscles they had torn. But listen to me, he knows in the new covenant, he knows our sufferings by experience. The eternal God became man. He tabernacled among us. He lived the human life. He died the death that we deserve. He is the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He knows our sufferings because it is by his sufferings that we are healed. It's by his blood that we are clean. It's by his broken body that we are made whole. He has experienced our sufferings. And so when we see the word new, it's filled with so much more beauty in the new covenant because we understand that he knows by experience. And you don't have to believe me. You can believe whoever wrote Hebrews. And I want you to turn here to Hebrews chapter two. Hebrews chapter two, verse five. Hebrews chapter two, verses five through 18 is what I wanna look at. And we'll close here today, but know know this. He knows our suffering and he knows our salvation. Not merely that he knows it, but rather that we are saved by his suffering. Look at this in Hebrews chapter two, verse five. Now it is not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection subjection to him. Look at verse nine. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You want to know how well he knows your sufferings? He suffered on your behalf that he might taste death for you. That on the cross, he experienced the eternal wrath of God for all of his people that we might not ever have to taste death. He knows. And keep going in verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom by whom we all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to, make, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Listen, it says that he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the, de- the devil, and deliver all those through fear of, who, through fear of lifelong, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 
has saved us by his suffering. When we see in Exodus chapter two that God knew what hope is filled in, in our hearts for the people of Israel because he knows He knows and he will act. He will save them from their slavery in Egypt. He will make it so that they don't have to to be slaves to the Egyptians anymore. And he'll he'll make it so so that they'll plunder them on their way out and they'll go out into freedom. All of those things are true, but church, how much more is this hopeful for us who in the new covenant understand that God knows our, our pain and our difficulty and our suffering so keenly because he became a man. He tabernacled among us. He lived among us. He lived the human life perfectly. He died the death in suffering that we deserved. Why? That he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. That he was made like us so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He knows because his suffering, his suffering is our salvation. And as we go on into Exodus and we see all of the mighty things that God does, I want to remind us of who this God is. Because of how awesome he is and his transcendence, we might assume that he is far away from us. Because of his, his awesome power and his mighty deeds, because he is so far above what we can comprehend or understand, we, we might be tempted to say he's far. But Moses is shouting And we see more clearly in Christ that the the pages of scriptures are shouting that he is close, unbelievably close. That yes, he is transcendent. Yes, he is more than we could ever comprehend or understand or imagine. And yet he is unbelievably close. And in his salvation, that he has provided for us in Christ, we see both. He is the God who created all that we see who in eternity past elected us, foreknew us, called us to be justified, justified us, sanctified us, glorified us. And yet, when in the moment where we saw our need for a savior and we cried out to him, he was there and he heard. He heard our cry. And his action on behalf of our cry was not an empty action because he is the omniscient one, the omnipotent one. He is the one who can actually act on our behalf. And he has saved us. He has saved us eternally, not for a salvation that lasts for 60 or 70 or 80 years, but for all times and all the future that we have been given an inheritance that is him. And so church, we look at Exodus and we look at this God and we say, who is like him? who is like him in any way that you could describe him. No one one or nothing comes close. And yet he knows you. Let's pray.